A cybersecurity catastrophe could be brewing. That's according to my next guest, who points to several signs out there that don't bode well for critical data or critical infrastructure. Here with her reading of the tea leaves, the chief legal officer at quantum computing software vendor Quantinuum, Kanaya Konkoli Tege. Ms. Tege, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. And we should qualify you a little bit because we don't usually have lawyers talking about cybersecurity, but you have worked in the government and you are very close to policy in the job that you have. Maybe just tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for the introduction. So I actually started my career at Department of the Interior working on a class action litigation called Cobell. And what's interesting about that case is it actually required the U.S. Department of the Interior to disconnect itself from the Internet. I remember that case. (laughs) So when I started, my job was to work with the various bureaus and offices to understand their cybersecurity architecture and present it before the special master monitor to get them reconnected, which at the time, this was in 2003, 2004, Cybersecurity and understanding kind of cybersecurity architecture and those types of issues weren't really well known, and certainly not by someone who went to law school and thought they were going to just be doing litigation. So I had a crash course in trying to understand cybersecurity architecture. At the time, it was defense and depth strategies. Obviously, that's become now zero trust, but really had a, like I said, a crash course in understanding cybersecurity. Spent a number of years working on that and then moved over to work for Department of Energy on some of their litigation associated with the closure of the various Manhattan Project sites around the country. All right. So now you are with a quantum company and you are looking at signs in the economy, in developments that are happening that could mean a major critical infrastructure cyber attack is in the offing. What are you seeing? What are your dots that you're connecting here? What's really happening? So in the quantum computing industry, there's kind of two schools of thought. The first one is around the development of the hardware. There's a lot of opportunity associated with the hardware and what it can do as it continues to scale. The biggest risk associated with quantum computing is around what's known as Shor's algorithm, which eventually, and I do mean eventually, quantum computers will allow for the decryption of public key encryption. So Right. We're only at about 150 qubits at this point, but they've got to get to thousands before it can really crack that stuff in a few days. Exactly. And many people think that's years, maybe decades away. Why should we care? Well, for a couple of reasons. The first reason we should care is because understanding cybersecurity architecture and what you have as a company or as the U.S. government is really complicated. In many, many cases, you know, the architecture itself is built layer upon layer upon layer. So really understanding what you have and where your vulnerabilities exist, that is no small feat. The second piece really comes down to more of that policy issue. And it is around what I'll call the consequences of hype around breaking encryption. And what I mean in that respect is as you see more and more news articles and statements by various governments about the advancement of their ability to crack encryption. Most recently, China has issued two different papers claiming they've been able to do this, which I would say I think the industry writ large dismisses those claims, at least in large part. But what that starts to do is really escalate some of the tensions within particularly the U.S. government, but really governments around the world. And what that can result in is over-regulation and really 
the inability for these businesses and these groups to be able to scale because there's just not enough talent that sits in the United States. So the more controls that exist, the harder it is to hire, the more complicated it is to grow or scale your supply chain. And so then it results in a contraction of the actual ecosystem. We're speaking with Kanaya Konkoli Tege. She is the chief legal officer at the quantum computer software vendor Quantinuum. And just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, that people could amass data now and encrypt it later. Let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. If they did, by the time this decryption capability comes about, that data would be a decade or a couple decades old. So at that point in the future, when there are quantum-resistant algorithms out there working, would it really matter if the enemies could decrypt something that's 20 years old? I think that is a great question and something that a lot of people grapple with. My answer is absolutely yes. And I would say, how many people have changed their bank accounts in 20 years? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But certainly in the nuclear industry and in the defense industry and a lot of the critical infrastructure industry, 20 years is not a long time. And so data that's being taken today may still be relevant, even if it isn't from a personal perspective. It certainly is for the critical infrastructure and for the, you know, the safety and security of, of our country. Yes. Well, like I'll counter my own argument by asking, you know, a company like this FTX debacle. That was 10 years in the brewing, and so Mm -hmm. you would want to look at data, I'm sure they are, that goes back to the founding of it, which I think is about 10 years. So maybe Mm -hmm. maybe things do remain relevant long after they are on your active drives and have been moved to optical. Certainly, yes, absolutely. So given the step-by-step approach of quantum – and you know NIST does have those algorithms out that are the architecture for algorithms that are quantum resistant. What should chief information security officers and people related to this be doing now, different from what they're doing now? I mean, zero trust and so forth, because of the quantum threat out there. So what we recommend is to really look at your encryption technologies, make sure you understand who your vendors are, where your keys are coming from, Who's managing your keys and your what we call the, the key and the, the algorithm sits in what we like to refer to in layman's terms as the padlock, right? So if you think of your padlock, your key, and then the management of both, really understanding that full cycle and what's happening. It isn't the, the padlock, that algorithm set that will need to change. We also argue that the keys themselves need to change from a deterministic set, which are produced today, into a non-deterministic key to be generated for the encryption technologies. Because classical computing and quantum computing will exist side by side for the foreseeable future because quantum doesn't actually solve every problem in computing. It's not like everybody will have a supercomputer. And so the cross-breeding, I guess you will, or an algorithm that's safe from quantum could still be subject to classical decryption. So you've got to look at it from both angles, correct? Correct. It could. The other piece I would say is what's emerging in the industry today is the concept of hybridization where quantum computers are being connected to supercomputers and looking at the ability to distribute the algorithm based on or portions of the algorithm to what system could be run better. What that means is a continuous advancement. And I I raise that to say it's important to think about the ability of these hybridization systems to do greater and greater problem sets than what maybe we would have thought they could do even five years ago. 
So that's where CISOs and others really want to pay attention to how the industry is advancing and how much more you're able to do with, say, less qubits. Right. It really multiplies the measures they're going to need to have in place then, doesn't it? Having two systems of computing operating side by side or even, as you suggest, in tandem. Mm -hmm. It certainly could. And now's the time to get started, huh? Absolutely. Kanaya Konkoli-Tege is General Counsel at Quantinuum. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. 
Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Triver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn.
from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.